All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizens Climate Lobby's June National Call. We're very excited to be coming to you live from the Omni in Washington, D.C., where nearly a thousand climate advocates are joining us for our June conference. This is my first time hosting a national call. So for those of you who don't know me yet, I'm Stephanie Mungia, CCL Student Engagement Manager. I'm a graduate student myself, so it's such a privilege to get to support my collegiate peers as we strive to be better climate advocates. I'm especially looking forward to our call today because we're kicking off a weekend that is truly a celebration of all of us, all our volunteers and friends who are working tirelessly to keep climate solutions front and center. I'd also like to give a shout out and welcome to amazing volunteers all across the country today. I'd like to start off by welcoming our newest chapter, Huntsville, Alabama. Debbie Chang, who many of you might know, recently moved from DC to Huntsville and decided to launch a new chapter in her new home. Thank you, Debbie, and to all the CCLers who take us with them when they move to a new place, because it's not the first time this has happened. And of course, this month, you've all been very busy. In the month of May alone, you CCLers generated 115 media articles, held 220 presentations and tabling events in your grassroots outreach, and generated 5,756 personal letters or emails to your members of Congress, all while gearing up for this conference. So if all of that isn't exciting enough for you, we're joined today by an old friend and ally in our work, Bill McKibben. Bill is an author, educator, and environmentalist who helped found 350.org, the first global grassroots climate campaign. More recently, he helped found Third Act, a progressive organizing movement for people over the age of 60. Bill, thank you so much for being here. It's truly a pleasure to have you. Well, Stephanie, what a pleasure for me. It really is fun to be with you all. You know, um, I think I got to speak on what might have been the very first nationwide CCL call many, many, many years ago. And I've admired and worked with many, many chapters and many points on many things over the years. And what fun to be with you. I'm also especially proud that uh, uh, Madeline cut at least a couple of her teeth uh, back at 350 uh, in Wisconsin back in the day. Uh, she moved on from 350, I have too, and now I'm at, we're doing this work at Third Act, which I'll describe in a little while. Uh, had the uh, official announcement on Thursday from the federal government that we're now in an El Nino phase of the Pacific warming cycle for the first time in a number of years. And the consensus at the moment is that it may turn out to be a very strong El Nino. That means we're going to see a record temperature, perhaps this year, globally averaged, almost certainly in 2024. It also means we're going to see uh, uh, temperatures approaching or passing for the year that 1.5 degrees Celsius range that we pledged in Paris just eight years ago to do everything we could to avoid. Um, and really what that means is we're going to see a lot of crazy things happening because we're pushing this system into completely uncharted territory for human beings. Uh, um, um, as it gets hotter and hotter and hotter, we will see more and more and more of the effects. And that has big bearing on what we're able to accomplish or not politically. And we got a taste of that this week with the 
second big thing that happened, um, this stunning for the East Coast outbreak of smoke pouring down from Canadian wildfires. Those wildfires are obviously the product of climate change. It's been extremely uh, hot and extremely dry in Canada. That heat started early in the spring in the West, and Alberta has been dealing with hideous fires. I know some of that territory because it's where the tar sands are located that we've fought so hard over the years. Um, uh, and, and towns like Fort Chippewyan, where many of the heroes of that fight lived, have been evacuated. But that fire spread anomalously to the east very quickly because of this drought and heat. Pretty soon there were truly smoky conditions in Halifax, Nova Scotia in the normally quite wet maritimes and then in interior Quebec and that's where most of the smoke that cascaded down the east coast uh, uh, is coming from. There's a kink in the jet stream that's been pushing it down and as you know the funky operation of the jet stream is one of the things that scientists are attributing to the rapid melt of the arctic but it'll be a while before we know if that's implicated here or not it doesn't really matter what matters is that really for the first time the people who reside in the most powerful corridor on earth have been reminded in a most dramatic way of what people on earth, most people on earth live with almost every day. Um, it's not that we haven't had outbreaks of climate trouble in the East before. We have Hurricane Sandy being the most dramatic perhaps, but um, relatively speaking, the power corridor of the world that includes Washington and includes Wall Street has been at least a little insulated compared with the rest of the planet. Not this week. I was in Washington on Thursday. We were doing big demonstrations and just being outside, you could chew the air. I mean, it was grim. Um, what was telling, of course, is that for anybody who's been to New Delhi or Islamabad or Shanghai in recent years, they were familiar with that tightness in your chest and that sting in your eyes, because that's what happens every day there. In those cases, less the result of wildfire smoke than simply of the combustion of fossil fuel, but combustion's combustion. It pours particulates into the air. This is a good reminder that though we all focus on climate, the other effect of burning fossil fuel is the um, tremendous attack on the bodies of vulnerable human beings. We now know that about 9 million human beings uh, die a year. That's one death in five on this planet from breathing the combustion byproducts of fossil fuel. And of course, we were also reminded this week of the third effect of relying on fossil fuel which is that if you rely on something that's scarce and only available in a few places, the people who control those places will end up doing um, with way too much power, which they're very likely to abuse. So, you know, in our country, our biggest oil and gas barons were the Koch brothers. They used their winnings to degrade and deform our democracy. In Europe, the biggest oil and gas barons, Vladimir Putin, he used his winnings to launch a land war in Europe in the 21st century, uh, losing that war to the 
brave Ukrainians at the moment, he decided this week to blow up a dam and unleash a kind of, well, people are calling it ecocide, and that seems technically accurate. Um, okay, that's the context for where we are. Um, we're in a good deal of trouble, and that trouble is going to get worse over the next couple of years uh, as this new heating kicks in. Um, um, and that trouble is probably going to at least allow for the possibility of more political flexibility than we've seen in the past. Let us hope so. Because, of course, the other thing that's going on simultaneously that really matters is the tremendous drop in the price of renewable energy. The fact that it's dropped in price, solar power, wind power, the batteries to store them, something like 90% in the last decade is in parallel with the rising temperature, the most important statistic on our planet. Because it means that there's no longer a deep technological or financial obstacle to doing what we need to do. We live on a planet where the cheapest way to produce power is to point a sheet of glass at the sun. That is a remarkable change. And uh, uh, so what's happening now, <clears throat> people are saying that I'm not speaking loud enough and I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I, it's, why it's one more good reason why it's good to have young people involved in this movement. Um, um, they have a little more volume than the rest of us. At any rate, um, that rapid fall in the price means that we could move quickly, but of course we're not moving quickly enough. Even with the passage of the IRA, which provided some money and which has begun to push us in the right direction, we're still way behind the eight ball. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, as you know, has told us that we need to cut emissions in half by 2030 to have a chance of staying on those Paris target pathways. By my watch, 2030 is, uh, well, about six years and six months away. So that's what one presidential electoral cycle, three congressional cycles, uh, you know, 24 quarters as the business people count them. Um, um, we've got to move with great dispatch. And as always, it's not easy. And we know the reasons that it's not easy. One is inertia, which is always a force in human affairs. But the other, the deadly one here is the incredible power of vested interest, the ongoing determination of the fossil fuel industry to maintain its business model one way or another, even at the cost of breaking the planet, which is clearly the cost. Um, so our jobs are to figure out how to disrupt that business model uh, and allow us to move quickly where it's possible to go. There's different parts to that. One of those parts is to figure out how to be using a lot less energy because that's usually the cheapest, lowest hanging fruit here. Um, I live in rural America and have lived here all my life, which means that I know that on a winter's day, you know, too many of my neighbors in Vermont are heating the out of doors. You can see the heat waves coming off the roofs of houses. Um, um, it, it is the simplest and cheapest option uh, 
and the most humane for our neighbors to help them through that, to insulate those homes, to do the rudimentary uh, energy efficiency work that cuts consumption of energy by a large quantity very fast, and then makes it easier to deploy the renewable energy that we desperately need. And then we get to the second half of that equation, which is deploying that quickly enough and all the things that need to happen. Um, which is hard because vested interest and also uh, individual preference for things the way they are get in the way of some of those changes. <clears throat> um, I'll tell you a story uh, that I related in, the, in a piece I wrote uh, for Mother Jones uh, of a month or two ago. Uh, and it dates from 20 some years ago now. In my very rural part of the world, uh, there was a proposal for one of the first big wind farms. Um, I'm gonna be in the Adirondack Mountains in a place where I've lived and the landscape I love enormously. Um, and it was a very sound proposal, but the local environmental group uh, decided that they were opposed to it and managed to, in the end, uh, after all the procedural tools they had in their quiver, defeat it. And it's never been built. And so that wind blows without helping turn on lights and cook food and drive cars and all the other things that electricity can now do. Um, that. I fought hard to get that built, and it began a long time ago, helping me understand some of the things that we're going to need to do. The first of those sort of things, and these are what I wrote about in Mother Jones, is help talk to our neighbors and friends to persuade them not to stand in the way of everything all the time. Um, that piece was really, as I said, written for other people like me, old white guys who are really good at blocking things. Um, we should be thinking differently than we have been. And I hope that you'll share some of these ideas uh, 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 with other people. For one, um, you know, it's useful to protect your own backyard. That's one of the things we're called upon to do. But we're also required to remember that our backyards are actually connected to the rest of the world. We share a backyard uh, such as it is. And for those of us who live in the rich parts of the world, that comes with a real moral obligation because we have, um, well, we've produced huge amounts of carbon. And in the process, we're wrecking the backyards of everybody else around the world. You saw those pictures from Pakistan last fall when they had the biggest flood since Noah, 33 million people displaced. Um, Pakistan's put way less than 1% of all the carbon up into the atmosphere compared with the 25% that comes from us in this country. Um, Africa's put two, 3% of all the carbon in the air. They're taking the brunt of climate damage more than any continent on the earth. So you don't get to protect your backyard at the expense of others in a moral world, it seems to me. And we also, by the same token, 
don't live just in our own particular moment. Someone may think that they have um, absolved themselves of climate damage by purchasing a Tesla. Uh, um, if you've been driving your whole life or your parents, or your grandparents, you've got a hell of a lot of carbon to make up for it because it's all still up there. The carbon that came out of the back of my family's Plymouth Fury when I was getting my learner's permit at the age of 15 uh, is still up there in the atmosphere trapping smoke, um, uh, trapping heat. Um, and, and so those are real reasons to lay off. Um, um, and of course, the biggest reason to lay off is we're in an emergency. And in an emergency, you have to act differently than you would act in normal times. I get, to some degree, why people don't want to look at wind turbines or solar panels. But I also think that um, in an emergency, that becomes a luxury that we can't afford. And truthfully, it should drive us to think a little differently aesthetically than we have been thinking. I've come to think of a wind turbine on the horizon as something quite beautiful. The, the breeze made visible and, and a symbol of our willingness to take responsibility for our own needs. I think about here in Vermont, where I live, the fact that most of the time when people are uh, coming out against putting solar panels on, they're talking about the danger to agricultural land. In Vermont and in much of the country, that means land devoted to growing corn. And if you think about it in a different way, corn is basically just another inefficient solar collector. When you have to pour a lot of nitrogen on to get it to grow, nitrogen that then washes into the water system and in our case turns Lake Champlain green, but in the larger US case, creates that huge dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico when it washes down the Mississippi. Um, and the corn that it produces, we don't really need. We know that because most of it we use for corn syrup or more likely ethanol, uh, 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 which is a complete and utter waste. The new data shows that uh, something like 60% of all the corn in Iowa is growing essentially gasoline. But it's all so inefficient that if you took one or 2% of that land, covered it with solar panels, and used it to power electric cars, you'd get the same mileage out of them. Um, so it's a, a powerful moment to be thinking about all this change. Sometimes this change comes under the heading of permitting reform. And I think that if we're going to be serious about permitting reform, there's just a couple of caveats to bear in mind as we do it. Uh, and I think that they're important caveats, and I've been writing about them. Um, um, one is, in a rational world, it should follow as much as possible a climate test. That is, it makes no sense to make it easier to build pipelines, LNG terminals, all the things that scientists have told us 10,000 times over now we can't build more of. So a kind of even-handed permitting reform is contrary to the laws of physics uh, uh, at this point. Um, and I think that's important to understand. The second thing I would say is um, there's no question that any kind of permitting reform needs to come with some kind of fairness test. 
because we know who's taken it in the chin all along from our energy system, who's gotten to live next to everything that's no good in our society. And so those people in those communities should get an extra level of say and protection about what happens going forward. Uh, indigenous communities, environmental justice communities, uh, uh, that's really important to listen to them and to protect those interests as we do this. The third thing I'd say that I haven't heard as many people talking about, but I also think is going to be really helpful and important in a lot of ways is to the degree that we can figure out how to make it easier to build projects when they have community ownership, at least in part, it's going to get much easier to do this. And man, would it be nicer to have a, um, a system that was not reliant just on giant energy corporations forever and ever. One of the things that made, say, the Danish transition to wind energy work so well was that it was quite possible for local communities, churches, labor unions, uh, youth groups, all schools, all sorts of people to be invested in and take ownership from a lot of those projects. And and the statistics about what happens when you do that are amazing. Among other things, uh, the amount of um, uh, 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 illness and and uh, related to say wind turbines that people report goes straight to the ground because now people have a stake in it. It doesn't feel like some alien thing intruding on the landscape, but rather something that you've bought into quite literally yourself. So those are the places, the things that are the nuances that I would think about as I thought about permitting reform going forward. We have an extraordinary amount of stuff to build, and um, 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 that's going to be much of the work of the next decade or two, figuring out how to build, how to make that transition. There's 140 million homes in this country. There's maybe a billion machines that have to be changed out. That's a different task than a lot of the ones we've been engaged in. It's an exciting task. It's one that allows us to do all sorts of good things, but we have to do it with justice at the forefront and we have to do it together and we have to do it fast. And someplace in the you know, intersection of all those different imperatives, hopefully there's a way through. So I'm gonna stop there to deal with some questions if people would like. Um, Stephanie, over to you. Perfect. Thank you so much, Bill, and really a great comprehensive overview of some of the challenges we're facing. Um, I think it just makes it all the more important that so many of us are here in DC this week. So with that, I actually want you to get to see a few of our folks over the in the ambassador rooms. So I think Ricky's going to give you a sneak preview at how many people have joined us this week and are watching us live just down the hall. Wonderful. Oh my goodness, that is a packed room. Hello, everybody. Hi, CCL. Oh, this is fantastic. And these are just the folks who were here in person, Bill. So you've got a big audience listening to you today. Thank you as always for using your platform to really get the word out about the importance of these climate solutions. I know we have a lot of audience questions and you already answered a couple of the questions that I plan to ask you. So I'm actually gonna toss it over to a familiar face on this call, our amazing Senior Director of Communications, Flannery, to help us get through as many of them as we can. 
All right, thank you, Stephanie, and thank you, Bill. Um, so I, you started to talk about your perspective on permitting reform, and that's very helpful. That's top of mind for our folks. That's one of the things that we will be lobbying on uh, on Capitol Hill on Tuesday. Um, so we have one question. Uh, the most upvoted question so far is um, if you have a preferred uh, permitting bill of, there are many, you know, many bills and proposals out there so far. And do you have a, a take on any of them or are we still kind of looking for the, looking for the yep. ideal version? I think that's all sorting themselves out. That's why I gave you, for me, that list of three imperatives um, um, there at the end about community ownership and uh, about justice and about a climate test uh, that doesn't that privileges clean energy over dirty energy. Obviously, the political realities intrude on all of these. So those are the things I'd be working hard to try and get into whatever form permitting reform ends up taking. Okay, great. Um, and I appreciate you putting back in front of us the, the IPCC target of cutting emissions in half by 2030. Um, and we have a, a bunch of different questions where people are kind of raising different uh, different solutions and wondering your, your perspective on them. So um, folks have mentioned regenerative agriculture. Some folks are asking about mining. Some folks are asking about nuclear. Um, so what's your sense of, of the, the path forward toward cutting emissions as deeply as we need to? Well, truthfully, I think given the time that we have and given the economics, probably the most straightforward way in the immediate future is uh, sun, wind, batteries, because um, they're cheap, on the shelf, affordable, ready to go, and you can put them up fast. Um, and that's not true of other things. On the other hand, uh, nuclear power, uh, I, I, it seems to me, uh, that we should be doing everything we can to keep open the plants we've got at the moment, as long as we can figure out how to operate them safely. And I'm glad that there's research going on to figure out whether we can actually get to this next generation of nuclear power that might provide affordable, safe, and somewhat smaller uh, uh, nuclear options. Jim Hansen, my old friend, uh, in this work has long said that he thinks there is a fourth generation or fifth generation of nuclear power possible. And let's hope that he turns out to be correct on that as he has been on many other things going forward. Absolutely. We're, we're fans of Jim Hansen over here too. Uh, he's I know it. on our advisory board. Um, all right, well, so to wrap up, we've just got a couple minutes left for questions. Um, and I'm seeing some, some questions where folks are uh, wanting to hear a little bit more about Third Act. I think sure. a lot of folks are familiar with 350, but- Sure, I see someone saying, can we join Third Act? You definitely can, especially if you're over 60. We don't really check IDs, but the idea here is that youth have been leading this work for a very long time. Uh, I started 350.org with seven college students. That's who powered the fossil fuel divestment movement. Then, then there was the Sunrise movement. Then there was Greta Thunberg, by the way, who graduated from school yesterday. So her last school strike is behind her. What a visionary leader. How lucky we are that the climate rock star turned out not to be a diva, but instead a remarkable, remarkable human being. Um, but by themselves, of course, young people lack the structural power to make change on the scale we need in the time we have. The idea of third act is that those of us over the age of 60 have structural power 
coming out our ears. In my case, I have hair coming out my ears now too, but the, um, the, it's not just that there's a lot of us, 70 million of us, but our political power is greater than that because we all vote. There's no known way to stop old people from voting. And we have most of the financial resources, about 70% of the financial assets. So if you want to push around Washington or Wall Street, it helps to have some people with hairlines like mine. It's been great fun watching them assemble. We're about 18 months into this, and it's become very, very big very quickly. Um, our biggest campaign has been around taking on the banks. This was after the IRA when we didn't. We thought there was a period when more federal action was unlikely in the short run. So we've been going after the big banks that are uh, uh, funding the fossil fuel industry, and we've had some luck there. Big series of nationwide demonstrations, which many CCLers helped with, um, and we'll be doing now this summer big program to take on the public utility commissions around the country and lots and lots of other work. I think our symbol has kind of become the rocking chair. We've used it to good effect in number of sit-ins now to shut down the banks and things like that for the day. And I will just say, for those of you who have, uh, you know, something like that on your bucket list, um, sitting in a rocking chair is a vast improvement over sprawling on the pavement in my experience. So. Uh, uh, come check it out. We're having a good deal of fun. Uh, and we work really closely with young people, really young people often. What we found is that the uh, relationship between, how to say this, between people the age of grandchildren and grandparents is a lot less fraught than the one between people the age of children and their parents. Uh, all grandchildren, all grandparents love their grandchildren completely unconditionally, no matter what they're doing. And all grandchildren are smart enough to cut their grandparents some slack. So it turns out to be a great working relationship that we're enjoying immensely. Uh, and we'll look forward to seeing many of you uh, helping out at Third Act, just as all kinds of third actors love helping out at the work that CCL is doing. It's gonna take all of us, uh, 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 even those of us who um, sometimes feel like we're ready for arrest. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Bill. I'm going to pass it back over to Stephanie now. Perfect. Thank you so much. And thank you to our audience for these great questions. Every single month, you always bring great insights to the conversation. Bill, it's a privilege to know that if it is going to take all of us, you are right alongside with us and helping us get more people engaged. Uh, it's really such a critical journey we're on right now towards clean energy permitting reform. And I think you've given us great insight for really how to advocate for that in a just and equitable way as we go to the Hill on Tuesday. Take care, y'all, and many thanks, Stephanie. Absolutely. So now let's shift gears a little bit and take a look at what we're doing this month. First off, we're asking you to practice talking about CCL's clean energy permitting reform principles. If you missed those, you can actually go back into the weekly newsletter from a few weeks ago with Jen Tyler's report from our government affairs team. Even if you're not with us in DC this weekend, there's also plenty of opportunities to get in on the action by helping to amplify what we're doing here together. You can write to Congress and keep up the pressure for more comprehensive bipartisan clean energy permitting reform that will help us really deliver on the promise of a just clean energy transition and hit those targets that Bill was just talking about. 
And of course, follow and share our conference post on social media so more people can see the impact we can have when we come together. You can use the hashtag CCL2023 and hashtag grassroots climate to track those. Now we're only able to do this great work because of the support of donors like many of you listening today. We've heard so many creative ideas from our chapters for fundraisers like pickleball tournaments with elected officials. We're seeing some chatter about that in the forums on community, so go there for more information. We're gonna ask you to keep thinking outside the box like that and help us fundraise this summer. Of course, the real lifeblood of CCL is our relationships. And this is the area of our action sheet that I'm most excited about. I was just speaking to one of our campus chapter leaders at William & Mary last week about the moment that his chapter really took off. And he said it was when they turned, quote, radically toward each other. So thank you, Philip, for the inspiration. If you want to supercharge your relationship building, host a potluck this month to plan your summer outreach and turn radically toward each other while you're there. We've also learned from you all in the field how important it is to welcome new volunteers right away and to give them a community to belong to. So this month, try pairing up your new recruits so they can get to know us together. Now, I'm going to exercise a little bit of host privileges to do something we can only do at this national call one time per year. Invite real people in person to share what they're excited for this weekend. So I've invited a couple of our amazing interns to share why they're here, what they've been doing with CCL, and what they're most looking forward to. So with that, I'm going to pass it over to Danielle. Hello, everyone. I'm Danielle, the National Chapter Development Intern. And what I'm looking forward to this weekend is the in-person reminder that our community is a mosaic. So many folks from so many different backgrounds, walks of life, rallying around that shared goal. I'm really excited to meet you all. Hi everyone, I'm Samantha Johnstone and I'm working as the communications intern this summer and I'm really excited to lobby. So not only is this my first time at the CCL conference, but this is my first time lobbying. So something I love about CCL is that you can pitch in with any level of experience. So I'm super excited to join you all. Hello everyone, I am Emily O'Keefe. I am involved with William & Mary's chapter and I'm also the founder of the Carbon Fee and Dividend Movement, the student-led movement for the Carbon Fee and Dividend. And I'm most excited to just connect with people in person, um, people who have really similar values. And uh, it's just, I'm so, yeah, I'm very excited. Thank you. <laughs> wow. Thank you all so much. I mean, if that isn't an inspiration and that isn't getting you excited for all the great things we're going to accomplish this week and well into the future at the hands of these wonderful people next to me, um, I don't know what will. So with that, I just wanna say thank you all again for tuning in. Thank you for being the world's most dedicated and effective climate advocates. It is truly such a privilege to work with you all and have a wonderful month. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. 
Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.